I'm Ruth Graham, and this is Standoff. And I was pacing this motel room, and I was so terrified because I realized that I had to interview some of these members of the Aryan Nations Church, right, to get to get a better feeling for what's going on. And uh, God, I didn't. I do. I want to do this. Do I want to go home? Da 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 da. And I decided, no, by God, I've got to do this. This is James Aho. He's a sociologist based in Idaho, and he's describing a trip he took in the 1980s to interview members of the Order, a white supremacist group that had spun off from the Aryan Nations. So in those days, they had things called telephone books, and they had yellow pages, as they were called. And and in the yellow pages, they have, you know, appliances, automobiles, physicians, and churches. And just on a whim, I went through the churches, and I went. you got the Mormon church, you got the Methodist church, you got the Catholic church, and then you had the Church of Jesus Christ Christian in the yellow pages under churches. Mm. And so I got up my courage. I don't know how I did it. I probably wouldn't do it today. And I phoned the number, and this little old lady answers the phone, and she said, Church of Jesus Christ Christian Aryan Nations, may I help you? <laughs> I said, yeah, I'd like to speak to Richard Butler. And remember now, he was the, the pastor of the, of the right. church. And, well, he's not in right now. Uh, can I take a message? And I said, yeah, I'd like to. I'd just like to meet him. She said, oh, yes, he'd be happy to meet you. And so I had this interview set up. I wanted to learn more about the order from Aho because of its connection to Christian identity, the white supremacist movement that also influenced Randy Weaver and his family around the same time, as they planned their move from Iowa to rural Idaho. The siege that took place at Ruby Ridge in 1992 is, of course, the main story I'm focusing on in this podcast. But there's a lot more to the story beyond those 11 days. So I've been collecting more information and interviews in our Slate Plus episodes, Each week, Slate Plus members get a bonus episode with exclusive or extended interviews about the white power movement at the time and other stories that go deeper into the Weaver standoff. In this episode today, I'm giving you a preview of the two Slate Plus episodes we've done so far, first with James Aho about The Order, and then with historian Kathleen Ballou about the role of women within the white power movement. These were both great interviews that really round out the story of Ruby Ridge, and I want you to join Slate Plus to hear the rest. This podcast and much of Slate's work would not be possible without the support of Slate Plus, so I hope you'll consider becoming a member. It's $35 for the first year, and you can sign up at slate.com standoff. Okay, let's get back to James Aho. The story of his meeting with the Aryan Nation's pastor, Richard Butler, is one you'll want to hear. And there is this – Coeur d'Alene is on this – Lake Coeur d'Alene, which is this spectacular glacial-carved lake. And there's this big hotel there. I think it's called the North Shore Inn or something like this. And we agreed to meet at that hotel in, in the restaurant. And I showed up there, you know, nervous and things like this. I don't even know how old I was. I was a young man. And sure enough, Richard Butler and his bodyguard showed up in the parking lot, and they walked in, and we introduced one another. We sat down at a table, 
And Richard Butler had brought his briefcase with him, and he took out all these pamphlets, and he gave me all these pamphlets and and books and booklets Mm. on identity theology, some of which I related to you, some of that stuff I related to you earlier uh, in this interview. And then we began to talk. And I just asked him about how he got into the movement, and the the bodyguard was sitting there, and and he was not saying anything. He was just watching everything. Unbeknownst to me, the FBI, because like I said, they were monitoring everything. The FBI was sitting at a nearby table, taping everything, right, listening in on our conversation, (laughs) and. The next day, the bodyguard that had accompanied Richard Butler was arrested because he was the person who put out a contract on the person who had betrayed the order to the FBI. This bodyguard and his helpers had put out this announcement saying, if you can give us evidence that you have gotten rid of this guy who betrayed us, photographic evidence that you have murdered him will give you such and such an award, you know, like $5,000 or something like this. Well, what the FBI did is they doctored a photograph of this guy who they felt had betrayed the church, and they had his head cut off in this doctored photograph. And this FBI agent showed the bodyguard this this doctored photograph and <laughs> was given the money and they arrested him on the spot for wow. and i don't know exactly what the charge was you know attempted murder or you know whatever he's one of these guys that died in prison i'm pretty sure so that was sort of my beginning of my interviews with some of the <laughs> real violent start, people right yeah, it was a pretty good start. And and it, as it turned out, I interviewed a number of them. And then, now remember, by the time I was doing my research, the prosecutions were beginning to occur. So a lot of these mm-hmm. guys were in prison. So I couldn't really interview them face-to-face. So I corresponded with them. And mm-hmm. I'd ask them these questions, you know, what's your religious background, your educational background, you know, your family background. How did you get into the movement? And, and you know, in prison, I guess it's really boring. There's nothing to do. So, and so these guys would write these long letters back explaining in detail the, their lives, their biographies. You know, people are flattered when you display an interest in their life stories and their particularly their conversion stories. How did you become this? Hmm. How did you become this uh, radical and this kind of thing? People are flattered and they want to tell their stories. And so I got a tremendous amount of information just, you know, from that correspondence. But I also, you know, did telephone interviews and face-to-face interviews. I did attend one of those Aryan World Congresses that they Uh would hold every July up at the Aryan Nations Church before they shut it down. And they had a gate, and not everybody was let in. But I drove up the, the dirt road up to the gate, and by this time... A lot of people in the movement, the right far-right movement in the Northwest knew who I was because I had interviewed a large number of them. And I was met at the gate by these guys with these baklavas, you know, these, these face masks and their military-style rifles and their camouflage outfits, really intimidating at the gate. And the gate says, only white people admitted onto these grounds. So I stopped the car, got out of the car. 
And I, they asked who I was, and I said, I'm Jim Aho. And they said, oh, yeah, well, we've been waiting for you to come. And so they had me down on a list of, of guests. And so they raised the gate, and then I drove into the compound itself. Meanwhile, out on the highway where the dirt road starts, the FBI was photographing or videographing mm-hmm. every, the license plate of every vehicle that was going into the premises. And of course, they, they had they videotaped me and my <laughs> license plate. And I was driving a university vehicle that said, you know, Idaho State University, Veritas Vos Liberatum on the seal. And I wonder what they thought of that when they saw that. I mean, they were reviewing the, the investigatory tape. But anyway, there's all kinds of stories like that. Well, I'm still thinking about that first conversation with Butler and what his motivation was to be so willing to meet with you. I mean, do you think he was, did you get the feeling he was trying to convert you or what did you think his his game was? Yes. Part of it is it's that missionary impulse that you have an obligation to convert in, in your missionary role. And uh, I'm very familiar with that because in this area, we have all kinds of missionary activity going on. So that's partly it. Partly, I displayed a kind of naive, open-minded curiosity. And I think that probably is a little bit of attractive. I did not go Mm -hmm. in with a judgmental attitude, although I did go in with terror. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I didn't go in with a judgmental attitude. And that's that kind of naivete. And that really helps. So, you know, if you have a sincere curiosity in what other people are doing, that really does elicit a kind Mm -hmm. of positive response. Another thing I did in the course of my interviews, because I conducted, you know, I don't know how many interviews, and I had a little handout that I would give them prior to the interview, my interview subjects. And What I provided them was a description of myself. You know, I would describe my religious background and my religious affiliation, my educational background, my family Hmm. uh, relationships. I would give them information about myself identical to what I was trying to elicit from them. And I think that helped. Yeah, it's like a calling card. Mm -hmm. So let's have a conversation as equals here instead of you viewing you as an object. I'm also, you know, we're both subjects in this Mm -hmm. thing. I'm treating you with respect. Now, they were definitely suspicious originally because of the word sociology, which is, of course, etymologically connected to the word socialism. And there is, in the right wing, this connection between socialism and sociology, and it's not a nice association. So there was a good deal of suspicion, and also this suspicion about higher education, which is, again, very prominent in our society, probably always has been a part of the anti-intellectual component of our culture. If you're a professor, you know, you think of Ichabod Crane and his Adam's apple, And, you know, that's the typical professor. And so I had to break down those kinds of barriers. And and you do that by schmoozing and, you know, just being a decent person and uh, just not being an asshole. And you said, I mean, very understandably that part of you was sort of terrified talking to Butler. Were were there other situations in which you found yourself afraid and, you know, talking to these people? 
I'm glad you asked that question, Ruth, because just like so many of us are frightened of people that we've never met and probably never will, I was terrified mostly before I ever met these people. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. I had these notions that there's these people up there in the woods and they're going to kill you and stuff like that And if you're not careful. Once I began to talk to these people, I began to realize that they are not these monsters as they were being depicted, that they were actually human beings with their own families and their occupations and their own biographies and their children and their dogs and, you know, their houses and all these kinds of things. And, and so I became less frightened the more I got to know them. That isn't to say that I allowed myself to say that I had ever converted or anything like that, because obviously I didn't. Right. That's an a thing that happens sometimes in doing, I guess, maybe even journalism. You know, the, the more you get to know your subjects, the less alien they seem, the more human they seem. And you can actually see aspects of yourself in them. Hmm. And that can be a little bit unsettling. So that's just a little bit of my interview with James Aho. To hear the rest of his story, sign up for Slate Plus now at slate.com slash standoff. Next up, here's a snippet of the interview I did with historian Kathleen Ballou, who offered some really eye-opening background on the white power movement and the hidden influence of women. Let me ask you first, Kathleen, you use the term white power, and there's all these other terms. There's separatism, supremacism, white nationalism, you know, that, that we've heard over the course of this series. So do you want to start just by talking a little bit about the term white power and why you use that and what that distinction is? Absolutely. So when I'm talking about the white power movement, I am writing a history of um, a social movement that brings together people across a lot of different belief systems, um, beginning in the aftermath of the Vietnam War. And the period that I look at ends with the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. But these uh, social networks continue beyond that point. Certainly white power includes the events at Ruby Ridge. I think white power is a more useful way to think about this than some of the other terminology. My concern with white supremacist is that it's overly broad. I think a lot of things count as white supremacy that are much more mainstream than the movement I'm talking about, including, as historians have argued, many of the systems that undergird mainstream American life and politics. Um, white separatism, in which white people are thinking about creating a homeland distinct from the nation, is one strand in white power ideology, but it's not sort of the most um, pronounced or most universalizing of those beliefs. And then the trickiest one is white nationalism, because white nationalism, I think, is correct from a strict political science definitional kind of a of a of a place. But the problem is when mainstream people think about white nationalism, I think it really easily gets confused with a nationalism that is a looser, more positive and more more sort of it signals that the category we're concerned with at bottom is sort of an overzealous patriotism, right? I think when people say white nationalist, you think perhaps of Klansmen in the 1920s mold who are marching on the, the National Mall wearing their robes and hoods, but with their faces unmasked, um, carrying American flags. The nation at the heart of white nationalism is too often assumed 
to be the United States, when in fact, what the activists that I'm looking at were talking about was a nationalism based in a racial nation that was going to be a transnational project uniting white people across national borders and fundamentally sought to overthrow the United States. So it's not about patriotism, right? It's about a fundamental threat to the nation, mm-hmm. or at least to the, the nation state um, in favor of a racial nation. So what I'm trying to get at when I say white power is a terminology that recognizes both the fundamentally radical and violent nature of this movement and also respects the terminology that these activists use to describe themselves because white power is the sort of rallying cry that appears throughout this movement and not just in one strand. So when we think about the the stars of the white power movement, and I you know use that term with hopefully a little bit of distance in my voice, but when we think about the the kind of marquee names, they've tended to be men. So what does a version of the history that focuses on men miss out on? So I think scholars have made this mistake over and over, as have journalists and kind of the broader public when it's tried to understand what this kind of activism is and how it works. Without women, what we get are either analyses that look at the performative nature of this activism, so people wearing camo fatigues and marching in public, for instance, and we get accounts of violence that tend to focus on one-off events. Um, Sometimes those are reported as lone wolf attacks. Sometimes they're reported as the work of a few people. Um, Sometimes they're reported as the work of madmen. But in order to see what this was, which was a coherent social movement joined by networks of people and joined by deep social relationships, you have to look at women. So tell me about some of the ways that women prop up and advance these movements in in ways that, like you say, they might be hard to see at first glance. Sure. So the archive shows that women have been part of this movement from the beginning and have played very, very important roles to sustaining and fomenting this kind of activism. This included everything ranging from support work for violent action, which includes things like driving getaway cars, disguising fellow members, um, and performing some of the actual criminal activity, to things that seem much less radical but are equally, if not more important, to sustaining a social movement. And I'm thinking here about things like marriages that cement identity uh, relationships between two different groups, the way that people find uh, love and have children and educate their children within this movement, the way they create things like curriculum and coloring books and other kinds of educational materials, and also the way that they seek out uh, new members and market themselves to people through sort of the presence of women that sometimes works as a claim of mainstreamness or a disavowal of violence. So one of the things we can think about is the way that women appear at important moments in this movement's history and at times that the movement is doing important sort of work um, that wouldn't be possible without the presence of women. The other thing to think about when you think about the people who are prominent in the white power movement, you're absolutely right to see a list of men's names, right? When you look at leadership roles and people who are at the head of organizations, but also the people who are serving jail sentences because they've become important ground level activists, those are almost entirely men. And that's partly because 
we, meaning the Academy and I think a lot of journalism too, Mm -hmm. have usually used a method of understanding women's activism that comes out of the kind of long history of feminism. And as a result, I think the way that people tend to look for women's activism has been to look for feminist modes of action. So for instance, on the left, one way to look for where our women has to do with how many women are included in leadership roles, right? But Historians have argued when they're looking at the new right more broadly, and especially at the fringe, that in order to see women, we need a totally different conception about what activism might look like, because women in the white power movement would uniformly say that they're not trying to be leaders, right? They value submissiveness within the home. They value their role not as trying to be figureheads, but as, for instance, mothers and the white family, right? That doesn't mean that they're not politically active. It doesn't mean that motherhood can't serve that same political function. What it means is that the interpretive apparatus has to include things like motherhood as part of how we evaluate women's activism within this movement. How did you approach that question then as a researcher? You know, if by definition, this kind of leadership is not as public facing, isn't recorded in the same kinds of ways, how did you go about digging it out? So I'm following in the footsteps of a whole bunch of historians who've looked at the history of the conservative movement more broadly. So one of the huge turns in the academy has been to look at the rise of the new right. And here I'm talking about not the white power movement, just to be perfectly clear, but mainstream conservatism that people have thought about as rising in the aftermath of World War II. And usually the narrative is sort of around culminating with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980 and then growing around social movement activism in the 80s and early 90s. Now, that movement used to be studied only through the work of men in a top-down kind of way, looking at how are the ideologies put forward by, say, talking head neocons in Washington, D.C., adopted and treated in elections? Like, how do they do at the polls, right? That's one valid way of looking at that movement. But what women's historians have found is that there's actually this enormous network of women who would say that they're not trying to be political activists, but who are doing incredibly important activist work, doing things like holding coffee clutches for their neighbors, um, getting involved in local school board races, using their free afternoons to campaign around local um, PTA and other issues like that. And that that infrastructure of people undergirds the conservative groundswell. A similar thing happens in the white power fringe, where women are cementing relationships through intermarriages and doing all kinds of other formative activism that holds together this movement. So the way this appears in the archive is that if you pay attention to not only sort of the public-facing rhetoric and grandstanding sort of work that the men are doing and also the violent activism that the men are carrying out, but also what the women are doing, even just as simply as recording and paying attention to which women appear in which groups at which moments. What you see is that women's relationships are how we can begin to see how the groups are connected to one another. So typically, you'll see something like, for instance, at Aryan Nations, there were two sisters in the 1980s who married members of the order. One of those couples goes on to be involved in another group. Those parents had been in Aryan Nations. So you see a family moving through this kind of radical activism. Another place it turns up is in court testimony because 
in several cases where white power male activists are tried, they end up cross-examining their wives or ex-wives on the stand by way of kind of proving their good character because many elect to represent themselves. And the women um, in those situations tend to talk about their deep ties within the movement. And what we see is not just sort of a string of criminal activity, but things like a coordinated way that people stay at each other's houses when they're coming through town. And if you need marriage counseling, you seek it within the white power movement. If you need a ride from the airport, you pick up each other, you take care of each other's children. So one example of this is the very prominent example of the order, which is the white power terrorist group led by Robert Matthews um, in the 1980s, which is a, a very successful example of the strategy of leaderless resistance. And it ends, or at least Robert Matthews, um, his life ends when he is pursued by the FBI to a safe house in Whidbey Island, Washington, um, and pursuing agents drop illumination flares on the cabin, and it goes up in flames, perhaps because of ordnance that he had stored there for a firefight. Um, and he does hold off the pursuing agents with machine gun fire for a while before that happens. Um, go, the house goes up in flames, and he becomes a martyr for the movement, right? This is a well-known enough story that it also has currency within the white power movement with people traveling to that site as part of a martyrdom circuit to sort of pay homage to his sacrifice to the mm. movement. So when you tell that story, and in most accounts of that story, what you imagine might be one man facing off the federal government by himself in like a rustic mountain cabin, not on like Ruby Ridge, right? What actually seems to have been the case from the archive is a little bit different. This is more of a vacation house than a rustic cabin. Hmm. And right up until just before this confrontation with the federal government, this house is full of women and children, um, including like toddlers. And they're making spaghetti dinners. They're like, they're cooking for him. They're dyeing his hair to help him escape the authorities. They're taking care of each other's children. Like this is a family space. <laughs> and it is in this family space that Matthews writes one of the huge formative documents of this movement, the Order's Declaration of War. And it comes up in one of the trial transcripts with one of the women who was in this house with her, I think, two-year-old helping to do this supportive work for the movement. Someone asks her, did you ever see this document? She said, oh, yes, yes. And they said, in what capacity? And she said, oh, well, I proofread it for them. Hmm. So any historian of women and gender immediately has a whole bunch of questions for this woman about what exactly do we mean by proofreading, right? Because in many historical situations, a woman proofreading, quote unquote, a document creates the possibility that she might have been a co-writer of the document. Mm -hmm. And even if we're in a social movement that devalues that kind of women's labor, one has to ask if women were really exerting more of a formative influence on the ideology of the movement than we might have imagined. Kathleen has a lot more fascinating stuff to say about that and about Vicki Weaver in the rest of the interview. You can listen to that and more in our bonus episodes by, one more time, signing up for Slate Plus at slate.com standoff. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back to our regular episodes next Wednesday, November 21st. 